This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope you're all doing well. We're in August now, and everyone is eager to enjoy what is left of the summer. I have been enjoying watching the newly-fledged songbirds in my yard learning the ropes from their parents, chasing after insects, and digging in the ground for beetles and worms. It won't be long before they all pick up and take off for their southern destinations for the winter. I'm also having fun watching the bumblebees and other pollinators flock to the flowers in my garden, like cup plant, jewelweed, goldenrod, echinacea, and boneset. Soon the joe pieweed will bloom and the monarch butterflies will be coming through to fuel up for their southward migration. I just wanted to take a moment to say here that I know some people have expressed how pessimistic they are right now. Another gigantic iceberg just slid into the ocean, forest fires are still raging in the west, and COVID-19 seems to be rearing its ugly head yet again, this time in the form of a variant. As bad as things may seem, sometimes it's so important to stay focused on the good that is being done. Every day there are more and more gardeners in the United States turning to native trees and plants for their yards. Awareness of the needs of birds and other wildlife is on the rise. And there are finally global policies being put into place to combat climate change. So what I'd like to say is please don't lose heart. The fight is just beginning. I realize it's like trying to turn the Queen Mary around in the other direction, something that is very challenging to do. And it's going to take all of us to make it happen. Anyway, with that thought in mind, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we'll be speaking with Anna Fialkoff from WildSeatProject.net, headquartered in Portland, Maine. Anna is one of the authors of the new book just released by Wild Seed Project called Native Trees for Northeast Landscapes. Available to members and non-members alike, this new book, co-authored by Wild Seed Project's founder, Heather McCargo, is chock full of great suggestions for growing native trees in just about any situation. Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's really great to have Wild Seed back on the show and talking about native trees. Now, you guys just published a beautiful book on planting native trees, and that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. First of all, you know, if you could tell my listening audience just why it's so important to plant native trees. Oh, yeah. Well, planting trees in general is important for helping our landscapes adapt to climate change and also they can mitigate the effects of climate change. So trees absorb huge amounts of rainwater. It's pouring down outside right now. So I'm very happy to have our street trees. They absorb 
carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and hold it in their tissues. They hold it underground in their roots and then build it into the soil as they drop their leaves over time. And they cool temperatures. They really kind of regulate temperatures on the ground and shade our cities and suburbs, which we really need. It's a great ecological service that trees play in that way. And if you plant native trees, you're going to get all the ecological benefits of being able to support huge numbers of insects, moths and butterflies, and their caterpillars, which eat the foliage of a lot of our native tree species. So Doug Tallamy, who you you may or may not know, um, he wrote a couple of really wonderful books more recently Bringing Nature Home, and then Nature's Best Hope. And then the most recent book he wrote was actually The Nature of Oaks. And in Nature's Best Hope, he identifies certain native genre that are really important keystone plants that are kind of like keystone species as we think of maybe some of those charismatic megafauna like the wolf that can help kind of balance the ecosystem. Well, trees as well as other native plants and many of the native species of those are extremely important and integral to supporting a wide web of life. So native trees like cherries and willows, poplars, maples, and um, many more are host to hundreds and hundreds of species of moth and butterfly caterpillars. And then those in turn are important for birds that feed on a diet mainly of protein-rich caterpillars to feed their songbirds in the spring. So having native trees is like having a huge reserve of native plant biomass. And they're kind of like the scaffolding of the forest and, and even the urban forest in that way. And so while other native plants are, are also just as important, native trees just provide you know, huge amounts of vertical biomass as well you know, in their branches, leafy branches, as, and as well as down into their roots. So planting trees is kind of a first important step you can take to kind of start supporting more life in your landscape. What led the Wild Seed organization to put together a book like this, which is actually really fantastic. It's got so much great information. What was the motivator? So we actually have come out with an annual publication called Wild Seed. It's It's been in a magazine form for the last six years. And then in our seventh year, we actually started an initiative. It's a call to action called the Pledge to Rewild. Um, and that is something that motivates people to take action to restore native plants in their landscape, change their landscaping practices to benefit wildlife and the planet's health, and then join forces with each other in their local communities to create kind of connecting habitat corridors so that pollinators and other wildlife can actually get to habitat as they move through. We kind of figured that it was time to rethink that publication a little bit, even though we loved the format of having a magazine and having folks from all different parts of horticulture and ecology and landscape design write articles for it. It brought in a lot of perspectives. We wanted to create something that people could kind of take home and be give a how-to resource for rewilding. So the first step to rewilding is planting native trees because they are so powerful for their ecological value and environmental value. So we thought we'd start with a native tree guide. So this is actually more of a, a pocket booklet. You could take it to your local nursery to help you select your trees to plant. If you could just touch for a moment on why a 
cultivar of a tree may not be such a great idea. Yeah, well, um, I think, you know, in the last number of years, we've really, I think the nursery industry has really pushed us all to be more jazzed on the cultivars, the new interesting plant that's really being marketed to us as something that's better performing in the landscape and more beautiful, more showy. But cultivars are not necessarily as beneficial as what you might call a straight or natural native species. So cultivars are bred to have specific traits, like they might have larger flowers, more color, different color flowers, or larger different colored fruits. They might be dwarfed versions of the natural species. And some of those different traits that they're bred for, we still have to do a lot of research to assess, you know, whether cultivars have as much ecological value as the native species. I think it's really dependent on species by species, really. But the preliminary research we have been kind of getting, looking at experts uh, like Annie White in Vermont and the Mount Cuba Center that have been doing research trials on cultivars versus native species, have found that there is often, depending on the species, and the cultivar itself, a little bit less or sometimes significantly less ecological value for maybe it could be the nectar content in a flower. There could be dramatically less. There have been some instances where there, there's actually been a lot more in, the, in a specific cultivar, but that's um, a little bit more rare. And another reason to not plant cultivars is that they're genetically identical to each other. So in order to kind of maintain those traits, that are desired. Well, for one, they've been crossbred with all different species. Sometimes species that are not native um, has been crossbred with the native species. And then also in order to maintain those traits, they're cloned in order to stay genetically identical to all the other plants that are labeled that cultivar. And so because of that, you don't have the genetic kind of variability within a species if you just use the cultivars and you don't have potentially the next generation of plants being able to kind of have adaptability to climate stressors like flooding and drought or extremes and temperatures that we will be and we are seeing more and more with climate change. So if you plant a seed grown native tree, then you're more likely to get that kind of adaptability with its future generations of that species. So I know that's kind of a, a big explanation, so I'm happy to expand more if need be. <laughs> I know there are studies now that are showing that pollinators can suffer from starvation and exhaustion being attracted to a native R that has the same brightly colored flower, even or maybe even more brightly colored than the native version, yet there's no pollen or nectar. So these non-native trees are exhausting our, our bees and in some cases even causing them to starve to death. Right. Yeah. Sometimes cultivars are bred to be extra showy with flowers that are actually have some of their reproductive parts, their male or female organs replaced with these kind of petal-like structures. So they look like doubles, essentially. Like peonies, even though it's not a tree, that's a good example. Peonies are bred. There are natural peonies that have the reproductive structures in the flower, but most peonies are doubles. You don't, there's no reproductive structures in the flower. So they're what I think Heather McCargo actually often refers to as sexually dysfunctional flowers. And so that does happen with trees too, you know, and sometimes a cultivar will have flowers with nectar, but maybe the nectar content is, is changed or the 
the nutrition in that nectar is changed from the natural species. So there's just so many variables that we just don't know enough yet. So I would say it's not bad to plant a cultivar, but if you're going to plant one, maybe plant a native natural species right next to it. Or if you have a landscape that can support more plants, also have the natural species there. Right. Now in your book, you, you talk about thinking like a forest. If mm-hmm. I were going to think like a forest, what would I be thinking? <laughs> I really liked the idea of kind of helping people not just learn to plant native trees, but to also plant them in a, in a kind of holistic, forest-minded way. And, and, you know, I think normally in our landscapes, in our parks, and our college campuses, and arboretum, we have trees that are planted as these grand specimens. Some of our be- most beautiful and oldest specimen trees are in those places, and they're something to behold. It's really wonderful to see an, a, a huge outstretched tree. In a forest setting, trees actually grow, you know, not necessarily as a singular specimen, but they'll grow more vertically, and they won't necessarily have the same kind of presence as a specimen tree. They're also growing not in a lawn or in a kind of a mulch ring within a lawn that that mulch ring is meant to actually, it's for landscapers, the mowers to not hit the tree roots so they can mow outside of that mulch ring. I used to think that, and I think a lot of people think that that mulch ring is necessary just to keep the weeds away from the tree because they supposedly suck nutrients and water from the tree, but that's not true. You can actually plant all sorts of layered plantings underneath a tree and it will only benefit the whole system more and more. So to think like a forest is to plant all those layers that you might see in a forest, the ground covers, keeping the leaf litter intact, the taller perennials and annuals, and then you have the the shrubs that are kind of that mid-layer in the forest. Then there's even understory trees like pagoda dogwood, and then the canopy trees, which are the tallest and and really create the shade that kind of insulates the whole forest. So every layer in the forest has its function and that provides innumerable wildlife benefits. It also just increases that, what I mentioned before, that native plant biomass by having this 3D structured forest system rather than just kind of having a tree and then the grass on the ground plain. Actually, Doug Tallamy also his research points to this minimum of 70% native plant biomass that's needed in our landscapes to support our local food webs and not let those kind of unravel. So in order to do that, it's not just about planting more and more native species, though that is important. It's thinking about having as much of that biomass as possible. So having trees is going to really increase that biomass by leaps and bounds. And then having all the different forest layers is going to continue that. And I would think noise would play a factor too. I mean, not using leaf blowers and lawnmowers and weed whackers around the bases of trees. And, and like you said, just let that leaf litter stay. You mentioned Doug Tallamy. He, he has said that a native tree is basically useless unless there's leaf litter directly below because the caterpillars lower themselves down the tree into the leaf litter to overwinter so that more caterpillars can be created for the following year. So it seems to be, a like you said, it's a system of layers and leaving those layers intact will keep your yard at a high biomass, especially for the birds. 
That's right. I had the privilege of, before coming to Wild Seed Project, I was a horticulturist at Native Plant Trust's Garden in the Woods in Framingham, Massachusetts. And that's a woodland botanical garden. So we were kind of doing that kind of forest gardening where we were planting underneath different layers of trees and shrubs. And we also had the privilege to raise different species of butterflies and some of our native silk moths. And so I got to firsthand uh, gain an appreciation for some of the life in the leaf litter. So one of the examples is the uh, Cecropia moth, which is a really big moth. It's the size of a small bird and it's absolutely gorgeous. Its adult stage is really just a couple days in its life. It actually really loves cherries. That's one of its main host plants. Its caterpillars feed on the leaves of cherries and other trees as well. And then they actually hang in the branch of the cherry and form their cocoons and then overwinter and then emerge as adults the next year. However, there's other moths that do overwinter under the leaf litter as cocoons. There's also butterflies that overwinter under the leaf litter as caterpillars. They're even more vulnerable that way, like the Baltimore checker spot butterfly. So it's, it's extremely essential, not just butterflies and moths, but you know, salamanders and bumblebees also spend a good portion of their life cycles in the leaf litter. So a lot of different life is dependent on that kind of leaf litter staying intact. Now in the book, you talk about guilds. What exactly is a guild? A guild is kind of a word that I think came from the permaculture movement. They kind of think about plant guilds as plants that all serve a function and work together as kind of companion plants. So that's a good way to think of them as companion plants. So for for example, the three sisters is corn, beans, and squash. And corn serves as kind of the pole that the beans trellis up, and then the squash serves as the ground cover. And in addition, the beans fix nitrogen in the soil as a legume, and they all provide some sort of food. They're all productive. So you can kind of translate that also with native plants to think about kind of replicating like a forest plant community. And you want to make sure that you have plants that all require the same kinds of conditions and their light and soil. So, you know, if there's a guild that prefers shady conditions and dry soil, then you want to pick plants that all prefer those conditions. And you'd get the ground cover layer, the taller perennials, the shrubs, the small trees, and the large trees. Now, in your book, you mentioned that by the middle of this century, climate change will have affected temperatures to the degree that trees that once were thought of as thriving in the mid-Atlantic states, which would be Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, that's actually going to be the climate for northern New England. So I notice you do have some southern trees recommended in your book. Could you maybe mention a couple of those just in case, you know, people in New England who are listening are thinking, gee, you know, if I'm going to plan for the next 50 to 100 years on my property, what trees would be most likely to survive? And I know you have access to testing that are showing some of these southern trees do quite well up here in northern New England. Could you maybe just mention a couple of them? Yeah, no, I think it's important to, alongside our New England native trees, to also maybe incorporate some southern species. Maybe even if you have like a microclimate like next to a house on the south side of a house or a warmer spot is good for some of them, but some of them are hardy up to zone four even. 
One that I really love that we grew at Garden in the Woods when I was there is American Holly. And that's an evergreen, a broad-leafed evergreen, so it's not coniferous. And it has prolific berries in the winter that birds absolutely adore. It's very versatile and grows in the shade as well as the sun. In the shade, it'll be a little bit more looser and maybe can be a little bit leggier, but is still a beautiful form. And in, in full sun, it will form a very dense kind of conical shape. I actually have seen it growing on Cape Cod on the coast. It's a It can be drought and wet feet tolerant plant. So it's versatile, both in what it can handle in light and soil. And, you know, in northern climates, it's a little bit more prone to breakage from heavy snows. But, you know, already in Maine right now, we're getting winters with less and less snow cover. So I think it's it's not necessarily going to be as prone to those winter breakages as it has been in the past. And maybe there, there might be a heavy snow winter every now and then, but it's less and less these days. Another one that I absolutely love is the Sweet Bay Magnolia, which is a charming small tree, one of our native magnolias. It has leaves that are similar to some of the Chinese magnolias that grow in the area, and it has kind of these cream-colored saucer-shaped flowers that are adored by pollinators, and then these red conical fruits that are important for birds, too. Sourwood is actually known to be a real bee magnet. And some honeys are actually based around sourwood trees because they're, they have, have a really special flavor. The sourwood is actually in the same family as laurels and rhododendrons. It's in the Ericaceae, the heath family. And so it has a similar looking flower to dog hobble leucothaway, which is another plant in the heath family and incredible fall color. It gets this really rich scarlet color. So that's another slightly more Southern species that I think works well in New England. That's great. So now when you get to trees that are recommended in the book, you have a section on large trees, but you also have a section on small trees. Now, pocket pollinator gardens are very popular right now, especially with people who have small yards who can't plant a lot, but Could you just mention a few small trees that might fit into a pocket pollinator garden? Yeah, when Heather and I were thinking about what species to include in this booklet, we wanted to make sure that we had a number of small trees and also trees that some of those small trees can be considered shrubs or can be trained like shrubs or can be trained more like trees. So beech plum and spice bush, for example. Beech plum in its natural habitat grows in sand dunes on the coast. And it has a kind of more suckering, sprawling habit. But when planted, you can, as a young seedling, you can train it to be more tree-like and it can be very charming and graceful. So you can train it to have maybe one or two to three main stems and then kind of limb them up so that you can see through the stems and there's not too much foliage at eye level. And that's what makes it feel a little bit more like a tree. And then you can, once you've limbed it up a little bit, you can incorporate more plants kind of underneath and layered under it. So you wouldn't be able to do that if it was trained like a shrub to be kind of multi-stemmed and low to the ground. So in that way, you can do that with a lot of native shrubs that can be kind of more tree-like. So spice bush is another one. And spice bush is a real pollinator magnet too. The spice bush swallowtail prefers its leaves and um, it has these kind of fragrant scented leaves that turn a nice buttery yellow in the fall. It's really gorgeous. 
beach plum, you can eat those fruits. I also love red buds, and I think they're a little bit more commonly seen in the landscape. I love them for in early spring, they have these pea-like purple flowers that kind of line the branches. So you can kind of see the branches outlined in the flowers and the buds are a little bit more kind of like fuchsia color. So that's, I think probably why they're called red bud, but once they open, they're a little bit more like lavender purple. And those can also be trained kind of more as multi-stem shrubs or small trees too, but they're a little bit more tree-like. I'll just mention service berry as kind of a last one. Even though we have many more, I think we have about 10 small trees, 10 medium-sized trees, and and then we have 11 large trees. We couldn't part with one to make it an even 10. (laughs) Service berry is also extremely versatile. We tried to concentrate on versatile plants that can handle a range of conditions, but that's, you know, a harbinger of spring. It's one of the first flowers that you see, flowering trees that you see blooming on stream sides and road sides and wetland edges Another name for it is Juneberry because in Southern New England, its fruits are ripe by June. In Maine, it's more like the end of June, early July. When they're first blooming, you can kind of tell them apart from like crab apples and cherries that they're closely related to because their leaves are kind of half folded open while they're in full bloom. Whereas a lot of other trees bloom before their leaves actually come out. And their leaves can kind of often be green or they can be kind of coppery color. Those are one of my favorite plants. Their their fruits are really tasty too. And they're to me, they're kind of a cross between like a bitter almond cherry and a plum, but they're more like the size, they're a little bit smaller than cherries. So they're better for birds to eat, but we can eat them too if there's any leftover for us. (laughs) That is great. So now in the book, you tackle the big issue of access. How do we get our hands on native tree seedlings to grow in our yards? There aren't many choices in the your standard nursery or garden center. They all seem to be kind of obsessed with selling cultivars and nativars. So you have a great section in the book on how to grow trees from seed. Could you touch on that a second? Could you maybe talk about the northern black cherry and how you would get that tree to grow from seed? What are are the steps that you would follow? Well, Heather is the real expert on propagating native plants. Well, I have more of a horticulture background in garden setting, but I can speak a little bit to that. In general, I think the nursery industry, while they also push cultivars and the newest and, and supposedly best plants, They also push larger plants grown in bald and burlap trees. Those are often field-grown trees that their root ball is dug up and then they're wrapped in burlap and sometimes even cages, which can be really tough to get off. And landscapers often leave those cages on. It's problematic in a number of ways. And then the tree roots grow into the cage and kind of get girdled or they're just grown in soils that are from southern soils like in the Carolinas and have kind of clay soils but then when you plant them in the ground it doesn't match the native soils so the tree has a a hard time its roots have a hard time adjusting to the soils that they're planted in so there's a number of reasons to start growing your own tree seedlings it's actually more beneficial for the plant long term to plant it as a small seedling or sapling so a seedling is like a baby plant or to a toddler age And then a sapling is like a teenager plant. Their root systems are still young and they are not developed into a tight root ball yet. So they're more adaptable to 
the soils that they get planted in and they can grow very quickly and much, much better than the plants that are planted as huge trees. I think it's just, it's easy to want that kind of instant garden effect, but I think being patient and starting with small trees is actually better in the long run. Native oaks, for example, I think they're one tree that a lot of native trees don't do as well in pots or in in bald and burlap because they have tap roots. That's another kind of thing to add to that. That's one reason why a lot of certain species of native trees are not grown in the nursery industry. And tap roots can be very sensitive. You need to plant them pretty quickly. You don't want to disturb the tap root. So planting them when they're young is another good reason to do that. I'll focus on oaks, but if you're going to plant a native oak, you would collect the nuts as soon as they fall from the trees in early autumn. And then you'd soak the nuts overnight in water. And then you remove the, the ones that float to the top because those are the ones that are not viable. And then you want to plant those acorns kind of immediately after they've been soaked in a deep pot if you can, because that taproot again needs that space to, to thrive. And then that's usually in the fall. So over the winter, you want to make sure that that acorn is caged within its container. And that cage, you know, uh, it might be a kind of chicken wire mesh or landscape cloth. You just want to make sure that rodents don't get in. Squirrels love to go and dig acorns up, of course. They're planting the next generations of oaks when they catch them. So squirrels are great in the landscape for oaks, but when you're trying to grow them, it's detrimental. <laughs> yeah, I use so, old window uh, screens. I use, I use old window yeah. screens weighted down with rocks to keep the critters out. <laughs> So that's I have perfect. something to show really anything high tech. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's great about doing it yourself too, is like you could use a yogurt container to plant them in. I really like the idea of that. You just want to drill some holes in the bottom so that it has some drainage so the water water can come out. But you know, we get people writing into us saying that they've made their milk jugs into containers to grow their plants. So they're reusing different materials and it's all like a kind of a grassroots homegrown process. And that's what we, you know, like the most. It doesn't cost as much to do that. Those big trees can be hundreds of dollars when you plant a big bald and burlap tree. Okay. So then, you know, we, we plant the seeds and they have to sit outside through the winter. And then once spring arrives, we have little tiny saplings growing. What's the next step after that? Yeah. So once spring arrives, you want to plant those trees either in the spring that's probably if they're big enough, you know, all trees are going to grow at a slightly different rate, but the spring and the fall are kind of the best times to plant your trees. So the middle of the summer is really not ideal for most native plants to plant because in their life cycles, they're putting their energy into by that time, often preserving their energy because they're not getting as much water. Um, It's often droughty in the summer, especially these days in New England they're often putting their energy into their above ground parts. But in the fall, they put more of their energy into their roots. They are not taking up as much water and it's getting cooler. So they're preparing to go dormant. So I'd say late August and into September are great times to plant. And actually at Wild Seed Project, we have a fall plant sale that we we started that last year. And this year will be our second year. And it's very different. Most plant sales are in the spring or throughout the summer, but we really liked the idea of having something different. And it works well with our seed schedule too, because we encourage people to sow seeds in 
the late fall, early winter. So from November through January, then their seeds germinate in the spring and you can grow your seedlings on through the summer, making sure they get adequate water and don't dry out. And then you can plant them when they're big enough in the fall. So just like native plants, native trees need that freeze and thaw, freeze and thaw action that occurs outdoors. Mm Because I was just going to ask, is it possible to start tree seedlings indoors? It it doesn't sound like it would be as successful. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are different rules for different types of seeds, but a good portion of our native plants do require that freeze-thaw action over the winter in order to break their hard seed coat and germinate. So that's just kind of what's required for the seed. And, you know, it makes sense because they're adapted in this climate. So if you start seeds indoors, it's just you have to do a lot of extra work to kind of replicate whatever that seed requires to break its hard seed coat and germinate. Right. Well, this Mm -hmm. has all been great. So tell me now, how can people get this book? It's right on our website. If you go to the shop portion of our website and our publications, it's there with our Wild Seed Magazines. Yeah, it's called Native Trees for Northeast Landscapes, a Wild Seed Project Guide. So I definitely encourage everyone to go pick up theirs and bring it to the nursery for their fall planting. (laughs) Right. Now, you have to be a member of Wild Seed to get the book? You don't. Wild Seed Project members do get their annual publication complimentary with their membership every year. So they don't need to do anything extra to get it, but it's $18 for the general public. And then we also do sell kind of bulk copies of it at a discounted price. I encourage people to do that, maybe share it with their local libraries, with friends and family, and get the word out. Because we we also, alongside starting to sell the, the Native Trees for Northeast Landscapes pocket guide, we started an initiative called the Thousand Native Trees Campaign. So we're trying to get as many people as possible to plant native trees and let us know what they planted and how many. And that's basically it. And then we're kind of keeping that data. We're going to kind of do a big reveal after the campaign is over and after the spring of 2022. So for this year, you can plant those native trees and report back to us. And it helps us kind of tick off our first action step in rewilding, planting native trees to support local food webs. And it helps Wild Seed Project carry out our long-term vision for our 10-year impact plan says that we are planning to get people to plant 1 million native plants in the ground by 2030. So all of these things will work together to just get more native plants in the ground, more native trees in the ground, and support that much more life in our landscapes. But you don't have to be from Maine to participate either. You can be kind of from anywhere. You guys are doing such a fantastic job educating people about the value of native plants and native trees. I'm just so glad that you're there. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be at such a wonderful organization. We're really moving forward with a lot of growth right now. And I think that it's all for the good. I think we are always probably going to be a small organization because we have kind of a grassroots action-oriented mission to get people to be more educated about native plants and to grow their own plants from seed. So I think we'll always have that as we grow, but that's really at the core of what we do. I'd like to thank Anna Fialkoff for joining us today. You can get the new book, Native Trees for Northeast Landscapes, by going to wildseedproject.net. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, 
Please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.